Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, everybody. Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of Full Measure After Hours. Today, a fascinating discussion about pandemics, the current one and ones yet to come, with scientist Dr. Stephen Hatfill. Yes, that Stephen Hatfill, the one the FBI wrongly implicated in the anthrax attacks back in 2001. Do you have something to say and want to make your own podcast? Let me tell you how to do that for free with Anchor. Anchor has creation tools that let you record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. You can even add any song from Spotify directly to your episodes. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more places, and you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's all you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Today, I'm interviewing the co-author of Three Seconds Until Midnight. That's a book with a warning about pandemics. He's Dr. Stephen Hatfill, and two interesting things you need to know. One, coincidentally, this book, Three Seconds Until Midnight, was actually published last November, just about the time the coronavirus was probably getting a grip in China. Number two, if you recognize the Hatfill name, it might be from the infamous 2001 anthrax attacks. The FBI wrongly implicated Dr. Hatfill really destroyed his career and life at the time by saying that he was responsible for these anthrax attacks. And ultimately, they had to clear him after hounding him for years. They had to pay him millions of dollars in a settlement. Of course, when the government pays money in a settlement, that's you and me paying tax money that goes for a settlement. But anyway, Dr. Hatfill went on with his life, and he went on to continue his scientific work He had worked at the National Institutes of Health. He'd worked at the Army Infectious Disease Research Facility, Fort Detrick. He is a biodefense expert. He knows about all of this stuff. And today he's an adjunct assistant professor in the Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Tropical Medicine in the Department of Clinical Research and Leadership at George Washington University. And he's a senior fellow at the London Center for Policy Analysis. Here is Dr. Hatfill. The problem today with emerging diseases, these are, these are infections we've never seen before. We didn't know they existed. Most of them have been jumping from animals into the man over probably since the mid-95, 1995. Um, is that po- because of our proximity to these Our population seems to have crossed a threshold. So what were once virgin forests, uh, there's now logging and enroachment. The animals are shoved closer and closer together. 
and their viruses start to traffic among different species. Uh, a virus that's learned how to uh, survive in, let's say, a squirrel and a bat. These are very different physiologies and biochemistries. Well, these are the type of viruses that we're very worried about jumping into humans. So when it comes to trying to figure out what to do, let's say in the future we learn that a country that's hostile to us or maybe not cooperative mm -hmm. has some sort of mysterious outbreak. We get a heads up. Yeah. There's still not much we can necessarily do about it, is there? Not at this time, but we need a system, number one, we need a better system. We need data mining back. There was a company very effectively that did this in the uh, mid-2000s. And um, they picked up the H1N1 in Mexico, where they had no authority. Uh, they were venture capital funded, and when the economic downturn happened, that was the end of them. But the people are still around. They're very bright. And... We treat our airspace as a national defense issue. Even though we have the FAA, we have the military involved in scanning our skies for ballistic missiles, for unwarranted aircraft, this type of thing. We need the same thing for disease surveillance. We have the CDC. They have their systems for doing disease surveillance. They work very closely with the WHO, too dependently, I think. But we need another system. Um, Is this one military-based, yeah. in your view? Somebody that will rehearse it, that's oblivious to changes in funding year to year, or administration. The U.S. set up NORAD. It was probably outside of the British Air Force in World War II. NORAD was probably the fusion center of its time. All this disparate data from orbiting satellites, ground tracking, optical tracking, space tracking, all fused into a central area. So if there was an alert that something unusual was happening, it was coordinated with a response, in this case, verification. So, yes, the satellites detected the flare of the missile being launched. Consequences. Uh, the trajectory tracking desk would say, well, we think it'll hit here and cause this many casualties. You know, and it looks like it's this type of a missile, so... And then the response. The people in the silos turning their key in retaliation. That type of system. And when you design the surveillance system, all those components need to be in place. A verification method on site. You, 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 you wouldn't have your house worked on by remote control when you're on holiday in Florida or somewhere. You have to be there. And it's the same with disease investigation. If you think something's going on that could be critical to the national security of the United States, and if you don't think infectious diseases are critical, look at what's happening now. You need on-site verification. How do you get that if the country does not want you there? 
China, according to our officials, did not open things up to us that we needed to see. There's people that are very good at getting into places and out. In addition, if it's something catastrophic, you're going to have people fleeing the area. So you send these teams into neighboring countries that are friendly and allow admission, and they link up with the local governments there. And, I mean, we have labs you can fly around the world. They fit inside a C-17, and they roll out, and they're advanced laboratories, field laboratories. In simple terms, are you suggesting maybe a team of military people yeah. and scientists could fly into a country, take what they need, maybe surreptitiously if they have to, but take biological samples yeah. and try to figure this out? Yeah, bring them back, try to figure it out on site. But it's got more, rather than... If you look at the figures, the majority of emerging disease outbreaks have been occurring in what we call biodiversity hotspots. As I just described, mankind enroaching into these native forests, cutting things down, animals crammed together. Unfortunately, about 98% of our low intensity conflicts in the world over the last 50 years have occurred precisely in these threatened biodiversity areas. It has advantages. If you're a guerrilla uh, fighter, you know, they're remote. A lot of them are very hard to access. But you're in constant contact with the animals. You have to cut firewood, hunt for food, this type of thing. And um, how do you send scientists into an area of low-intensity conflict. Look at the DRC, Democratic Republic of the Congo. The doctors went in there, they got captured. They had to send teams in to get them out. Why not send soldiers in that are capable of defending themselves, that are very highly trained in medicine, that have undergone extra epidemiological training, and that can insert into a conflict area by a variety of means, littoral, parachute in, short-range takeoff aircraft, whatever, walk in if they have to. When was the incident you referred to when, in the Congo? About two years ago. What, what had emerged there that the doctors went to check? Uh, uh, I think it was Ugandan rebels, and they had surrounded this one area in the Congo, and um, they couldn't get the guy out. But was there a particular they disease the that they were? The, yeah, it was the, the Ebola outbreak oh, there. Ebola. That's still going on. The DRC Ebola, not the West Africa one. And they did get the guy out. I don't have the details. But this is going to happen again. This is the age of epidemics and pandemics. More with Dr. Hatfield after a short break. We're back with my interview with Dr. Stephen Hatfield. You wrote a book called Three Seconds to Midnight. Yes. Ironically, that was published in November, probably about the time the coronavirus outbreak was really starting in China, as far as we know. Yeah, I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> I believe you. <laughs> I get blamed for everything. Yes, you do. <laughs> um, but what was the upshot of that book? And we'll talk about details in a moment, but what was the main point? Basically, in three sections, we describe this problem of emerging infectious disease. And there's, I think, figure two or three in there. 
it, it shows WHO data from 1918 on the number of new influenza strains that have been trying to jump into man and become pandemic. We had four that happened up until about 1995. And then you can see something dramatic happened because all these little micro outbreaks of different flu strains are happening. Something, what's different between 1995 and 1918? Well, influenza is a bird virus, essentially. It's a disease of birds. Most birds, it doesn't do anything to them. Uh, they pass it out in their droppings. Other birds get it. They pass it on. And uh, it spreads from north to south every year and back. There's these crazy little birds called Arctic terns. They're very pretty, a little black head and white. But they spend their whole life flying from the North Pole to the South Pole. That's all they do. And, uh, of course, they're spreading whatever influenza virus it is. That plus the Chinese agricultural practices of, they call it polyculture. So you have high-density pigs, chickens above them, uh, ducks in the ponds, fish in the ponds, and all these things, the droppings and waste materials, and it feeds the algae and that feeds the fish. and. It's the a, spreading on merging all their diseases. All the viruses are transferring. Are we doing that here? Not, well, what we're doing here are battery. You know, like huge hogs farms, like really a lot of pigs. Huge chicken farms, like some of these have a million chickens. Um, I wouldn't want to live next to it, the, the crowing and hooting and hollering, you'll never get any sleep. But the viruses are transmitting, and here comes a wild duck. And if they're outside, which a lot of these are, they pick it up. And uh, now it becomes a problem. So if you're a human, and let's say you've been working with the pigs, the farmer, and you picked up a pig influenza, now you're working with your chickens, and you pick up the bird influenza, in the human body, these two different strains can mix, and you get a hybrid virus that, like no one's ever seen before, and no immune system in a human has ever seen before. These are major shifts uh, uh, of the virus's proteins. It's a, it's a hybrid. This is the fear. And you'll see, I think 2015, I forget how many million chickens and turkeys we killed in the United States because we had an outbreak of a bird flu, influenza, that was actually killing the birds. So this is like just no. Because these viruses will continue to mutate when they're in a population. Every time an RNA virus replicates. It makes a mistake in copying its blueprints somewhere, random. But it's a survival advantage for this virus. So if it suddenly finds itself in a new host, you know, some of that, oh, well, this one replicates better inside this new host. 
and that sort of becomes a... So you can see, passing back and forth between animals over time, you start accumulating beneficial mutations. Not beneficial to us. Or not beneficial to us and the poor other animals. But this has happened at a faster pace in China because of their practices. I think so, yeah, for, for influenza. Um, before we go on, the title of your book, Three Seconds to Midnight, what does that mean? The um, Back around the time when the nuclear weapons were first um, developed, a group of scientists, physicists, got together and they created something called the doomsday clock. And its hands can be set forward or backward. And the 12 o'clock position r represented nuclear war. And they would set it forward or backwards, depending on a variety of factors, what was happening in society and the environment and this type of thing. Um, Right after we published our book, um, I think they advanced it to 100 seconds to midnight. Well, it probably should have been a little closer to three. So it was just a, a way of judging the state of the world every year. You know, how crazy are we? And three seconds to midnight meant, in the view of the you and Pan the authors... Pandemic. Pandemic but a serious pandemic like the 1918 influenza. But isn't this a serious pandemic as well? This isn't the one we're worried about, let me tell you. Really? The one we're worried about has perhaps a 20% mortality rate. Instead of fractional? Or... Instead of fractional, or let's give it 1%. It's variable. So this, in your view, was just a very small taste of what's possible. It's our last possible. warning, I think, from Mother Nature. Say it again, I'm sorry. It's our last warning from Mother Nature. So if Three Seconds to Midnight, would you say that book was about a warning and some advice yeah. in advance of this coronavirus epidemic, which we didn't know about at the time? It, um, over the last 10 years, I've, I've had some time to myself where I could work on projects that I wanted to. And I started looking at our pandemic preparedness. And in complete horror, I found out we didn't even have a national pandemic plan until 2005, when uh, President George Bush put one together. It was following 9-11, um, a very good book on influenza had come out. And I guess he read that and like talked to the CDC, and they're like, no, we don't have a plan. They tried in the 70s, but they couldn't get everybody to agree what role they would play. So a lot of fanfare, and this pandemic plan was released down at NIH. And if you read it, it's available on the internet, pandemic influenza plan. It's like reading a legal document. You finish it, and you don't know what you've read. Well, Health and Human Services came out a few months later with meat on the bones. Okay, here's our plan. The federal government is only going to do a couple things because it's a federal government and we are a republic. We're going to stockpile certain medicines that we think may be beneficial. And 
we're going to issue those medicines until we can get a vaccine. We're going to get those medicines to one point in every state. And it's up to the states now to distribute it to the local authorities. So it was a graded thing. They would handle things like the stimulus package. Uh, look for faster vaccine manufacturing methods. President Trump did this a year before this outbreak. He had uh, put into motion a plan to totally bring vaccine production back to U.S. soil. It's all made overseas. That's, you can't have that and have a national defense. So everything was being brought back to the United States, vaccine production, uh, even possibilities of making our own vital drugs here. The states were responsible for changing the laws, for changed, allowing changed standards of practice. Uh, public health deals with doing the most for the most people in the quickest amount of time. So standards of care get altered a bit. The states are supposed to provide laws for that, for allowing the use of off-care sites. If the hospital starts to overflow, let's use the high school as an alternate care site, and either move the normal patients out of the hospital or move the infected patients out of them. So we, we keep a hospital functioning and we're still handling the infectious disease cases. States didn't seem to do that. Then the local authorities, it was really clear. There was a checklist. Stock up on masks and gloves, just basic personal protective Before equipment. the pandemic or when the pandemic Before. Passed? They've had 15 years. Oh, here's a million dollars for you to do it. There are these little grants. Well, I say little. But these small grants going out, a million, two million, whatever, uh, to help local authorities do this. You need to make sure ventilators. Maybe buy an extra couple that you don't need this year because this is coming. So that's what the plan said back in 2005. And nobody did anything, as you saw. Before we go on, just as a layperson. Except the government. Mm -hmm. The government's kept its commitment here and has the gone federal past government. the federal government. And they've gone completely over backwards buying ventilators. for a th It's like the ant and the grasshopper, the fable. And the ants are working industriously and getting ready for the winter, and the grasshoppers out playing the fiddle, leaping around, and then winter comes. And then the grasshopper freezes, the ants are fine. That was Dr. Stephen Hatfill. And the full story, with a little more of the anthrax case background, will be on Full Measure, the TV program, Sunday, May 31st. How to watch it, you can find a listing of television stations by visiting fullmeasure.news and clicking about, or go to cherylackison.com and look under the Full Measure tab. You can find a whole list of stations as well as how to watch live or on demand anytime on our app called STIRR, S-T-I-R-R. And also this story, maybe this is the easiest way to see it, will be posted on our website at fullmeasure.news probably before noon Eastern time 
on Sunday after it airs on TV, Sunday, May 31st. By the way, this is going to be our last TV episode of the season. I'll soon be heading out to begin shooting interviews and stories for our big season six of Full Measure starting in September, but the best of our program will continue to air on Sundays throughout the summer, and I will have new podcasts as well. So I hope you'll look out for more content from Full Measure, live, taped, on TV, online, wherever you like to watch and listen. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast, and a final note If you're interested in more of the Full Measure interview with Dr. Hatfill, you can find some of that on my companion podcast, the Cheryl Ackeson podcast, also on iTunes or wherever you like to listen. And if you like my podcast, you'll love my new book coming out. It's called Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. You can pre-order that anywhere. Support independent journalism. Do your own research. Make up your own mind. Think for yourself.